Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another edition of Hold My Dream, where we navigate the news and politics with a chaser of civility. I'm your host, Jen, inviting you to grab your favorite beverage, sit back, and imagine with us how to create a new American identity together. Welcome to this week's Hold My Drink and Counterweight podcast with my co-host, David Bernstein. Today, we have Jason Miller with us. He is the host of the YouTube show, Native Liberty. And before we get started, Jason, did you bring a drink to this table to the table today? Yeah, just uh, one of my favorite Coors Light. It's a, <laughs> really just a domestic beer, so... <laughs> Shame on you. Yeah. <laughs> David, what about you? You bought a lemonade and vodka. Oh, nice. Nice. Change, yeah. So I'm doing a hot toddy. And it's so funny because here in Texas, when it drops down to like 90, you're like, oh, I feel a little chill. <laughs> we can like get something hot. So that's, yeah, I think that it's cold and I've got a hot toddy. So that's, that's me today. Uh, <laughs> so Jason, I have to tell you, I have been, you you don't know this, but you've been on runs with me this whole week. Uh-huh. I carry you around and I listen to you on my runs. Oh, and I wow. have to frequently stop because I'm just like, you, I feel like listening to you is like reading or talking to Helen Pluckrose. I'm like. <laughs> oh, I'm not, no. Mind. She's at another level. Alone. Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, I don't know what it is, but I'll tell you, you, you bring it down. And even that, I think that. For for me, I might need you to even bring it down lower, but you bring it to a, a place where you're like, oh, holy crap. Like, wow, that's that's what that is, you know? And I think uh, that's what Helen does in Cynical Theories. And so I've just been, you, you've, you've blown my mind this whole week while running. Sometimes I have to stop and pause and re- rewind. But my first, I've got two like intro questions for you. And my first is, when did you, notice all the crazy going on i mean you have just done so much i know from what i've heard about you you've been doing research on critical race theory critical theory whatnot for years but when did you notice and go oh 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 boy this Um, is (laughs) yeah so for me it's it's weird because i had seen it in the culture i you know what happened at harvard with over the halloween thing i think back in 2016 then the explosion of jordan peterson and how he got like trapped on campus, I saw all this stuff and I thought, okay, these are just your typical Berkeley one-offs, you know, these schools and these are just, you know, child, adolescent, teenagers just going off without any, you know, the the romanticism of re- revolution. And I didn't think much, much of it. And then it kind of coalesced with the, the death of George Floyd. And then I started getting, uh, you know, I have, I have friends with both native and non-native people where I work at, I've worked there for over 24 years. And people were coming to me and saying, I had a real good friend who told me that both of his daughters, who were like, I think at the time, 21 and 19, they stopped talking to him because he, he wouldn't agree with their philosophical position of this critical race theory stuff. And it was like, it was affecting him and his family. Then I had native friends, come, my native friends coming to me and, and within my own family asking me like, what is this? What's going on? I can't communicate with, with my son or daughter. And that was the, my first initial reaction with it. I was like, this may be something a lot deeper than I realized. I thought it was just a one-off here and there, and, you know, a, a random anomaly. And then I started realizing, no, there's a lot more going on. So that's kind of a, the impetus for me creating my channel was really just to create a small channel just to get it for my you know, friends and associates and colleagues at work and uh, family members. And then it, I didn't expect, uh, you know, Lindsay, James Lindsay to, to catch that one podcast episode. Then I guess he tweeted it out. 
I went from like, I think maybe 42 subscribers for like three or four months, which is fine. That's, I wasn't looking for anything beyond that. And then all of a sudden, it was, I think it's now at uh, almost 1,200, which is, you know, it's still relatively small. And I haven't published anything like in three months now. So, but that's kind of the catalyst for me getting involved. And I'm going to actually start getting back into uh, uh, producing more videos here real soon. I, now that I'm uh, laid off from work because of uh, the vaccine mandate. So Ooh, but I still oh. be getting back into it here. I have more time to devote to that. So. Oh, we're going to have to talk about that. But I will, before we do, I'm, I'm writing that down, is you are so knowledgeable. So, like, did you study this? Are you just an avid reader? I mean, you really, like I said, it, it, you, 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 you are at this. When I listen to you, I, I hear this level of understanding that I hear from, like, a Helen Pluckrose, but you're able to bring it down. Like, how? Yeah, this is something that, well, you know, I'm also a Christian. So, for years prior 20 years ago 15 years ago i studied postmodernism. i had read a bunch of books about postmodernism infiltrating the church and i wanted to always i believe in like the old renaissance saint ad fontes go back to the sources so i got i went back to uh, i read derrida foucault lyotard baudrillard i started getting into the actual you know the actual uh, sources themselves and then from there i went off like into an apologetics uh, defending the faith and those all kind of tied in with 15 years later with what we're seeing now. And I just had to kind of like refocus. And a lot of stuff that I was telling someone else, like I never thought I would have to be engaging this stuff that I learned 15, 20 years ago and having to like dust off the cobwebs in my mind and be like, okay, there's some connections here, but I couldn't really get, and it really wasn't until uh, the grievance studies papers came out with Lindsay, Bogosian and Pluckrose that I saw the connection. It was their work. And they're on the front lines where I was like, oh, I, I know this stuff. I, I've read this stuff before. I, it, like, you came back to me and I just had to dust off my books on the other side of this book room to kind of get back into, oh, this is exactly what we're experiencing. This is, there's, this is not an anomaly. There's, a, there's this real cultural force here that's taking place. And then I had to go back and get my old Gramsci books out and the prison notebook papers. I'm like, oh my gosh, I didn't think this was, I thought this was a dead issue. Like we learned that the Soviet Union failed and communism and socialism and private property works and you know all, you know the free market works and i didn't realize this is this is back on us again but it's taking a new form this critical race theory stuff yeah like i remember reading the frankfurt school 15 20 years ago marcuse horkheimer um and some of the other authors and i just i think okay this is this is uh something that happened in in the 40s 50s 60s and it's you know it's done with and here it is again like what well, this repeating itself again <laughs> Are there certain trends in the ideology that you're we're talking about, whatever we call it? You know, it's so hard to figure out what the right term is. I mean, we call it a lot of times critical social justice because it's more of an umbrella term, wokeness, whatever. Are there certain concepts or reasons why you feel that are inherent to the ideology itself that you feel that it's pernicious, that it's causing all this problems in in schools and other institutions yeah definitely I, I i you know i see it as um a resurgence i mean i know other people have talked about this everybody from jordan peterson to Lindsay, but it's I, I don't agree with the the victimhood nature of it i don't think that the way for i really think the i think for a certain slice in time I really, I'm a proponent of classical liberalism where I'm very libertarian, but I hold, you know, I guess you could say classical liberalism. And I believe that actually worked. A colorblind society is what we need to go. We're actually regressing from. And this notion that everything is, should be focused on race 
and that becomes a central foci of your life, your identity and of your race, I think that's actually a step backwards. And we're going to, instead of actually solving racial issues, and there's real issues, I believe, real issues of injustice, you know, within the United States Supreme Court, certain cases, regulatory law. And this is actually a distraction from that. And we're not going to get, and I think the term like equity, and just the fact that the language itself is based upon the postmodern conception of problematizing, that this is an ongoing, never-ending process. There's never going to be any point in time where critical race theorists or social justice warriors, whatever you want to call it, are going to say, okay, now we're finally equitable. Now we're finally equal. We can finally stop this. No, there's never going to be a point in time. It's going to be constantly, once you hand over the reins to that, you'll never get it back. Right. I it's view this as, of, a, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's an act of deferring. Yes. You know, and and, uh, and and it's it's the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. The curse that keeps on cursing. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> what do you, what part of it do you think is the most damaging to Native American psychology. I mean, that's, you started out talking about that and then you, you know, you really dived into critical theory in more in general, but something must have like triggered something where you felt that this was compl- very pernicious mm-hmm. in particular to indigenous populations. Well, it's again, it started with, you know, friends of mine who I've known for over 20 years um, and family members, and even within my own immediate family with my daughter, she was espousing certain ideas, and I just wait, wait hold on here. That like, I can't believe you said that. You, you know, I, you know me as your father, and you know my belief system. Like, why would you say that? You know, why would you focus on race as an issue? And I started hearing words like oppression and domination, uh, and that structural racism. And then I kept hearing it from some of my friends. From their kids, were saying the same thing. And I thought, okay, I guess my focus was that if we're not careful we're going to lose that younger generation of Native American kids. They're going to see this as, as a, not as a, as a cultural phenomenon or something to be studied, but as like the gospel truth. They're just going to absorb and digest this, this, this particular outlook, which I view as very toxic in itself. And that's to me is where I got started getting involved in this. It was really to hone in and hopefully have like, the parents become aware of what's going on as well as, as, well as hopefully the kids, their, their children would see. I really think this is, if it's allowed to fester and grow, this could be very well the end of civilization. I just don't see it as, this is not a boon. We're, we're Like I said before, we're regressing backwards. And I feel like, I had talked to, I think actually her name is Dawn. She was on the, one of my podcasts. And she had mentioned how the, the prevalence of TikTok videos and that her own daughters were seeing constantly these videos. They were, you know, it's like 15 second, 30 second videos. And it was about some non-native person decrying their white privilege. And you get enough of that culturally through osmosis, just every day, you know, seeing these images and hearing people, you don't really investigate it. You just saw oh, this is, must be, you know, this must be the truth. This must be what's out there. And it just kind of permeates the culture that way. And I, I'm so afraid that younger native people will view this as a form of uh, an impetus for revolution or social change. It's like, no. We actually had that in place, you know. We actually had this thing called classical liberalism. There, it wasn't a perfect uh, panacea, but it was the best we had because we're all equal on the same playing field. Yes, there was great social injustice in the past, and I'm not denying that. I have a bunch of books behind me that talk about that. I'm not arguing against that. But the way forward is to spread classical liberalism, you know, the, not to actually go backwards in time and to constantly look through this very colonial, post, postmodern, 
um, view of culture that's constantly tearing the fabric of society to pieces apart. So that's that's kind of where I get. Oh, sorry. Okay, I want to I want to ask you. So one of the things that I've been obviously like you have, I'm sure, and um, following the critical race theory discussion in schools, and you know, there's a group of people who said CRT, um, you know, denies history or um, the and and then there are others that are that are that are just sort of denying that CRT is taught at all, um, and then what they'll tend to do is say that it's uh, yes we C, CRT is not taught. However, we do believe that we should teach our kids how structural racism affects society. That's what you'll hear a lot of times, and it seems to me that that's what they—that's what we mean when we say CRT is in the classroom, and that's what they mean when they say we should teach about racism in the classroom. Um, and then the question I have is: Well, a, do you agree with that? And b, um, do you believe that? Uh, what do you think we should tell our kids, if anything, about uh, systemic racism? Yeah, see, that's the thing. As uh, coming from, I can't deny, you know, I'm both racism, half native and, and half non-native. I'm Hopi, Miwok, and German Scottish. So it's I can't ever deny either side of who my identity, who I am. And so I don't like it when I, I remember going to school and I had a very um, sanitized version of American history taught to me. And I remember thinking this doesn't jive with what I know, you know, from my grandparents, my great grandparents, my mother, what they've experienced on the reservation and. The, the, mm -hmm. the trials that they've gone through and the and as I got older, the history of certain Supreme Court cases that have almost embedded um, like racial assumptions, uh, you know, in the language itself, like the, the relationship of the Native American to the government is a, a dependent to a guardian award relationship. Uh, the whole Marshall Trilogy and, and Supreme Court law defines Native Americans that they can have rights of occupancy, but not ownership of the land. There's all this and you look at throughout the history, there's, there's a, there's, that's what I was saying earlier, there's actual real injustice that we need to figure out as a society. But focusing on this, this I, I view it as a hasty generalization, this term white supremacy, this, this, um, this view that there's structural racism, I don't see it. Uh, and I don't, I don't, I, I guess what I don't like is the extreme position of teaching this very sanitized, clean version of American history, this like almost American exceptionalism without talking about all the warts and everything that also happened, all the horrible injustices. Neither do I like the, the I'm gonna say this, but like the Howard Zinn Chomsky version of the other extreme where it's everything's negative, it's horrible. We've not, America, it's like, I view that also as a form, as a form of what's called the Nirvana fallacy, where you judge a, a society or a country by this perfect utopian standard, but yet you don't judge that society itself that you're judging right. from with that same standard. And so I don't want either one of those extremes. I always won't believe there's a nice happy medium where you inform students in the classroom, yeah, this is what's happened in history. And we did intern Japanese. We did treat Native Americans bad. There's the Trail of Tears. There's all these horrible injustices. There's a Dawes Act, the Allotment Act. There's the Assimilation Era, the, the Indian removal. I mean, there's all these horrible in instances in American history. But if you also look at the big scale of history, in every other country. And then if you actually apply that to Native Americans themselves, tribes didn't treat each other as some sort of benign people. They were always at war with each other. Right. Um, so, and I mean, there was peaceful tribes. I'm not saying every, again, it's not monolithic, but the point of, is that within history, especially within tribal structures, there's a great heterogeneity amongst tribes. Each one has a different cult, uh, customs, cultures, belief systems. Some had private property. They may not have had it in a formal sense, but it was there in an informal sense. 
And so what I see also I've come across is that you'll get this almost Marxian adoption uh, of natives who say that, you know, because we never owned the land and, and private property, we owned it in common. Therefore, we should adopt some sort of Marxist socialist system. I think, no, you haven't done your homework. There's, go look at some of the East Coast tribes or West Coast tribes, or even my tribe. There's matriarchal, patriarchal lineage. There's, there's divisions within the land, rotating, uh, rotating crops amongst families, fishing rights. There's all this informal system in place or institutions. And I see that again with this whole notion of, I guess I'm going off on a tangent here, but I'm saying that when it comes to history, I think it should teach a realistic understanding of history and not this um, jaundiced version or nor this, uh, this extreme version from either sides. It's, I guess my long way of saying this. So. I want to I want to stick with systemic racism, and this may be a little selfish, as Jennifer knows. I'm I'm fascinated by the topic. At some point, I'm going to write an article for Free Black Thought on sort of an exploration of systemic racism, and I, I see it used in two separate ways. Mm -hmm. One is it's used in the way that you talked about, like America's a white supremacist society. In other words, America is systemically racist. Another way you could look at it is: Are there particular institutions? Where bias is embedded. In other words, um, are there still is there still systemic racism in, in America, even if America is not systemically racist? What mm -hmm. do you think about that question? It's a good question. I think that gets a little bit further to where I'm like politically located. Is that there is within you know Supreme Court cases that's where my focus is on, or that affects Native Americans to this day that are like you said embedded racism. There's racial assumptions embedded within it, that, but that doesn't mean that all of society is inherently racist. Um, that doesn't mean there's this thing called white supremacy that, that's, that's structural throughout society. I don't, I don't hold to that theory. I think it's actually very shallow kind of thinking. I think there, this again probably is my worldview is I do believe in individualism or individuality. Uh, I believe also in the group. I don't, I don't like the either or approach. I think there's both the individual. We're not born into this world de novo. We're born into a family. So there's a structure in place. Um, but I think like going back to the Marshall trilogy, there's the Johnson v. McIntosh, which is the first decision that Chief Justice John Marshall instituted. Uh, and the holding was basically that Native Americans, they have the right to occupancy, but not the right of ownership on their land, which means you've taken away their ability to transfer property, to, to um, privatize property, to use that property in a way to pull together for resources uh, to become part of society. So you've got an institution that's completely backwards. So like, I, you know, where I work at here or where I did work at here, um, you've got the, the Pima tribe and you've got these other tribes. You've got my tribe, the Hopi tribe, the Navajo tribe. And it's like, you can see that the, 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 um, the difference, as soon as you just cross over from one territory to the next, from, from the city, you see wealth and affluence, progress, and then you go over to the reservation and it's completely the opposite. It's like third world poverty. And it's not because of anything to do with the mind or cognitive faculties or the color of one's skin or any cultural factors. It's because I believe as, as studying economics that it's an institutional reason. And those institutions that are there in place are because of these Supreme Court cases that are still inherently racist. If that makes sense, but I don't see it as a a white supremacy uh, structural problem. I view it as specific cases that if they're overturned, that could go a long way in alleviating some of these issues. And you're seeing it from a legal standpoint. If you took a Flint, Michigan, for example, where there was 
where there were some serious problems in the water supply. There was a commission that was put in place by the Civil Rights Commission of the Civil Rights Commission of Michigan looked at it and ruled that it was an example of systemic racism, that there was a whole series of things from redlining and the like that are systemically racist. I don't know if any of those really involve the nature of the law, mm-hmm. um, but and it may be that the law with Native Americans is more uh, likely because it's so different than the rest of our jurisprudence in many ways, mm-hmm. is more likely to have some embedded vestiges of racism than you might see in, in the you know in common law. But um, it's interesting. Um, yeah, go ahead, Jennifer. Want me to keep? Yeah, if you now if you were if you were still had other questions, my questions are a little bit more um, banal. I know I get into the very esoteric. Um, I get into esoteric questions now, and, I, and I'm I'm latching on to Jason here because he he uses you know I'm I'm obviously critical of critical race theory and wokeness mm-hmm. and the rest, but I'm also I also am looking for sort of middle ground, if you will, truth in between, as Jennifer would say, um, because I I do believe that that there sometimes are insights that we should look at. You know, there are systems levels analysis that we have that critical theory helps us think about, and um, and so I, I like it when people like you are able to sort of go there and not and not dismiss altogether it, every argument that yeah, you know, an adversary makes. I think the hardest part is that I've, as I've gotten older, I realize like, man, thinking is so hard. It's so easy <laughs> to, it's so easy to adopt a binary, you know, I know that's such an overused word, but again, there's, right. like you said earlier, there is points in time where it's mm-hmm. actually a legitimate thing. Like for instance, um, I'm going to probably shock people, but I actually do, I hold to some of the theories that, uh, um, Hominy Bobby teaches, which is hybridity. I don't know if you've ever come across that concept. But, Can you explain a little bit? Yeah, uh, let me tell me. Yeah, so and this concept of hybridity is is Bobby's concept, and I know people are going to be like, I can't believe he's quoting this guy. You know, people that follow me. <laughs> but he's arguing. First of all, he's actually has in mind. He's critiquing Edward Said's notion of Orientalism of this colonialism, and he's arguing that this notion of either or of it's this colonial power and the colonized uh, of the oppressor and oppressed class is these, you have, it's, it's too neat and tidy. Reality is not that neat yes, and tidy. There's not absolutely. this fine line he's arguing. And that within this fine, within the blending of the colonizer and the colonized colonialism, there's this, there's this liminal space, this hybrid, this hybrid space where mm. it could be hybrid, someone that's hybrid like me of mixed races, or it could be the culture itself and that there's this constant overlap between the two. And that's where cultural production, he argues, takes place. And that's the hard road that's always ha- has to be taken. And he argues that's, again, that's how I look at it. Like, he's actually dealing with, now I know there's some criticisms against that and some people argue against it, but I, I view that as him grappling with this very oversimplified binary application of, of this colonial academic um, heuristic device or schemata or scheme that's being applied through theory to culture. And he's saying, it's not that simple. It's not this clear cut path. There's a lot, a lot of time there's overlap. And I think when I look at that and I, I kind of take from what he's teaching in his books and I kind of apply that to this notion of white supremacy or structural racism, like there's it's the same thing. Yeah, it's it's like, the same ideology. I mean, it's a post-colonialist ideology um, that's applied to 
powerful nations versus powerless nations, you're really taking the same ideology exactly. and applying it domestically, right? Yes, yes. Um, so I'm curious about you for a second. Um, so I grew up, I'm Jewish. Um, that's not probably such a shock. And I grew up um, debating people all the time. And that's what uh -huh. we did. That's what we do. You know, um, not every Jewish family is like that, but a lot are. And I was certainly not an exception. And in fact, if anything, probably more on the extreme end. And I, when my kids, uh, you know, uh, one of my kids over there, uh, you know, we're debating at the Friday night dinner table. Uh -huh. And in some ways, it's how I learned, for better or worse, and it has its downsides as well. How did you become yourself? A, how does a, a guy um, growing up in, with your background become so enchanted with ideas the way you have? What about your upbringing got you here or about your personal journey got you here? Oh, um, gosh. I don't, that could be a whole, <laughs> it's a whole show itself. <laughs> I, well, I, I, um, I, I think it was... Uh, the fact that my family is my my family is just a huge on my native side is just a big family of, of breeds you've got i've got cousins who are hopi miwok and irish hopi miwok german hopi miwok i've got cousins that are full-blooded hopi or hopi seminole hopi miwok in kiowa it's just a big melting pot in my family so we were always taught from you know as far back as i can remember that my grandparents my parents to it was almost like just by default that you accepted everyone. You never, you ne we never judged anybody because how could you, I, you know, I'm a breed child, you know, I'm half. So my grandparents never looked at me as like a lesser of a human being or, or non-native. They looked at me as the grand the grandson, same with my parents, uh, same with all my cousins and my family. So I always grew up in that kind of uh, awareness. But for me, it probably hit like when I was probably like 24, 25, after I had my daughter, I started realizing, um, and just going to get back into reading books again. That's honestly, there was no like, like no gotcha moment for me. It was just, I needed to get back and study and stuff. And I, I was, I think it, that coalesced at the same time of my wanting to get back into church, wanting to get back to um, Christianity. And then I actually studied for many years, theology and trying to figure out, because I, I was of the point of view that I was a big believer in the theory of evolution and all these different theories. And I thought, okay, if, if there is a God, if there's not a God, I want to know it, and I'm going to refute it if there is. That's kind of like my I took that position. And so years of studying and studying, and that led, of course, to study history and then political philosophy, and then, of course, into postmodernism, the Frankfurt School, on and on, critical theory. So that's kind of the, my progression. It's not, there's no, like, um, epiphany moment, that moment that I had. So, yeah, And that's ever since then, I've just always, I, I've, there's no better feeling in the world when you tackle something that you're not familiar with. And you have that like light bulb moment and you see the connections like, oh man, I get it. And then also I had gone to college for many years, I'd gone for three years and I was going to go and get my PhD in either economics, history or philosophy. But I saw the writing on the, on the wall back then. I was like, I'm not going to be able to teach what I want to teach or do what I want to do. So I actually wanted to be a teacher. So, yeah. That's a very long-winded answer. No, I wasn't, no, I wasn't ready for that awesome. question. <laughs> <laughs> About you? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, going on that question, so I know that, you know, for you, one of the biggest problems with this imposition of critical theory is the diminishing of the individual. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that's one of my biggest problems, too. You mentioned that, you know, religion is important to you. Do you think that 
the individual and religion kind of go together? Do you think that, I, I feel like a lot of people who have religion, and I mean, you know, the Judeo-Christian, you know, is on religion that like there's this sense of individualism baked in and so sometimes there's more of a push against this imposition do you do you see that or do you see i mean am, am i making a connection there yeah yeah i think so i think within um christianity there's both you know i mean going off what the apostle paul teaches there's both individuality there's different parts of the body but they also come together to make one, the one body, the body of Christ, so the bride of Christ, the church itself. So I definitely see that based upon the, I think that's kind of one of the, I mean, that's debatable. Some people argue with me that's not, but I would say that the, the birth of, um, you know, the enlightenment also came out of as a reaction, of, of course, against the superstition of the church. But there was also that Judeo, I think, bedrock principles of individuality or individualism, as well as I think other certain tenets within Christianity that helped launch the enlightenment and helped launch the, you know, what we have today, this, this American system of thought, uh, this this American ethos, I think is also definitely dependent upon that Greek Roman Judeo Christian foundation that I see that slowly being eroded and pushed aside. So. One, what's interesting and I, I, you know, staying on the theme of religion is, and you, you do a good job of, of, kind of laying this out but this new ideology is almost a new religion in a sense i mean the way i mean do you want to see explain that a little bit yeah i that's something that i it's almost uh as i was reading some of the core tenets of like robin d'angelo and kindy and then um the intersectionality and some of the some of the writings of kimberly crenshaw and can't think of the other ladies there's uh I just read, uh, it's over there on my, I forget the name, but the, she talks about epistemic pushback. I can't think of her name right now. Allison something. Anyways, but as I'm reading this stuff, it's like coming from my background of the reform position, the reform faith within Christianity and knowing theology, I'm like, I can see their anthropology here. Their, 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 Their particular understanding of human nature their eschatology, their end time view, this kind of paradise view that once we, you know, become anti-racist and abolish structural racism and this utopia will be ushered in. This this very um, uh, millennialistic apocalyptic language. There's also this uh, uh, soteriology, this salvation sense within the the writings of the critical race theorists. There's this notion of like in Christianity of, of original sin, but within critical race theory, it's it's basically white privilege or being born with white or white supremacy, white complicity, white fragility. Um, so there's the parallels are, are shocking. And I remember years ago, I studied uh, Marx and I can't think of the book now, but I want to say fire in the minds of men is the name of the book, but he really tweaks out some of the parallels that Marx basically just adopted as much as he said he didn't like Christianity, he pretty much just adopted the theological tenets, the prolegomena, if you will, of theology, and just and just kind of rebaptize them and repackage them in this very um, secular Marxian outlook. And it was almost the same thing. He had the you know the fall uh, in biblical sense was when you know Adam and Eve ate, ate the forbidden fruit. According to Marx and even Rousseau, the fall of mankind is when the invent someone invented property. You know, and then you see that it kind of 
tweaked out again in critical race theory, the Frankfurt School, the critical theory itself. So there's all these parallels. And I remember reading, I remember seeing a video with Lindsay, James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose. And I can't remember the title of the video, it was on YouTube. And they were talking about how the, the woke itself, how that came about, like woke is very similar to being born again within Christian circles. And I was like, I, as soon as he said that, I was like, the connection was like, you know, very powerful, like palatable. Like I get that now, I see that. They almost have their own, they, and of course how they treat someone who denies their position, they can't have anybody that's considered a heretic. You know, they're outside the faith, you know, you're canceled. So there's a, the parallels are very strikingly. And I haven't done any like in-depth study on it. I just read these things as I come across them, but it's like, it's there. I mean, I can see it. And I think it's the hardest part is, as I think, and people will disagree with me, but I think people that have a very secular outlook tend to think that they also are not religious. I view human beings as homo religioso by nature. That is, we're by birth religious, and we can't shake that no matter how, no matter how much we try, and we're just going to reinvent somehow religion again. And I think that's what this is for many people who, are, who don't have some overarching meta-narrative, some overarching religious structure. I think for the woke, I think also we're in, this, in a period in time where this is, like, like Peterson said, a crisis of meaning within the culture. And so people are gravitating for something that validates their life. And I understand as a human being, I know what that's like, you know, I want to have, I want my life to count. Everybody does. I don't want to you know, go through life with a void. And so that's a very human need. And I think this belief system validates that need, you know, and gives them a real feedback on it in real time i'm i'm on the side of justice for the side of righteousness fighting against this evil empire this evil white supremacy and i think that gives them immediate feeling or gratification so i think there's a lot, a lot there psychologically speaking sociologically sociologically speaking as well yeah i'm sorry that's a like a long-winded are you kidding we're here to pick your brain <laughs> okay. but i think i david your turn i completely agree that it, it is strikingly similar to Christianity, and that's probably by design, in a way. Mm -hmm. um, I, you know, my first exposure to the term woke was probably in 2016. Um, I went to a meeting with Black Lives Matter activists. I was the head of a progressive Jewish organization, and um, we were there to meet and encounter Black Lives Matter activists for the first time. Um, and um, I didn't, I, I knew, I sort of knew the term woke, but I didn't exactly know what it meant. And, um, and then there was a, they, there was a group, there was a circle of, of some of the activists came together, they held hands, and they did what I could only describe like a, like a Christian revival. And someone said, um, you know, I was, uh, I was, asleep and now I am woke and there was oh, a lot of wow. amens and I and I realized like this was really the Christian vernacular here yeah. uh -huh. uh, playing out in a in a obviously in a very different setting with a very different theological um foundation but it was drawing on the familiar tropes yep. of Christianity that many of these people had obviously brought up with but now needed to reinterpret it in a way that described their current condition or as they as they saw it. Yeah exactly so yeah I, so I think that's, um, it's fascinating. I think there's a lot of terms. Also, it's just the, the very idea that you can't question the faith. I mean, it's, yeah. you know, um, it's, uh, so uh, the, the, the only problem, and I, I've told it to some of my more religious friends who agree with me on uh, the critique of wokeness, is that whereas Christianity and Judaism have calibrated themselves for many, many decades to 
living with, with and in um, enlightened societies and Western societies, and they're and they they have their place in the society. Wokeness that has no 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 such track record. Yeah, exactly. And 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 in a way, that's why Wesley Yang called it the successor ideology. In a way, it's it's meant to actually replace its replacement theory, replace yeah. the um, the 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 liberal values that undergird our society. I know. Well, I just I just went on a rant myself. No, no. Do it. <laughs> it's like uh, like you know. After the Reformation, we had those the religious wars for like some 30, 40 years, right? And then there was the Peace of Westphalia, which is where the, it kind of like we hammered out this kind of liberal society. Yes. And I yes. feel like we're, we're, we're like we're back in it again, you know, with this woke uh, social justice right. movement. Like they're, they themselves are trying to, I think, take over. And where there's getting there's pushback, of course. And we're in this same like uh, Cold War now, you know, with this woke right. movement. And I really do believe that the the price of civilization is is teetering on the edge right now. So for me, it's like I better get involved and start, yeah. you know. It, so and again, I've, I know I've been silent for about three months now, not published anything. But it's like I need to get back into getting some more videos out there about this. Yeah, stuff. you do, you do. And speaking of which, I'm going to move to. I wouldn't call it banal. It's not really banal, but. Um, I, I want to talk about your ideas on the vaccine because you and I'm tying this into where you just said you think something larger, you know, larger civilization is is, you know, in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so let's let's bring it down to, to, to an issue that's going on today. What do you think? I know I've, I've seen your ideas on on the vaccine mandates. Clearly, you've alluded to the fact that you are no longer employed. Yeah. Um, can you give us a little history? your own story around that and then your feelings around that and where it fits into that larger picture of uh, a civilization in jeopardy. Yeah, so sure. So um, so where I work at, I've been there for 24 years. It's on the reservation. I worked for this. I worked for the Salt River Pima Maricopa Indian community um, and I had been there for a very long time. And it was kind of a shock to me about two months ago that they, they said they're going to start instituting uh, uh, mandatory vaccination policy. And there was immediate pushback against it. And I was one of the ones who was saying, I'm against this. But this is where, again, I do value freedom. And I know this may come across to certain people as, as um, not being true to my principles, but I actually do believe in tribal autonomy, tribal sovereignty. I want tribes to be able to, to affirm and adopt policies that they believe in. Whether, and this is the, they adopted a policy that I disagree with, but I also have, and that's their freedom. It's also my freedom to disagree with that policy and my freedom to avoid my contract with the tribe, which is what I did. I don't agree with the tribal's policy of mandatory vaccination, which is what they have in place now. But I also believe, and it's almost, and I don't know if this is an apocryphal saying, but like what Voltaire said, I may not agree with what you're saying, but I will defend to the death your right to say it. You know, so I, and, and, and this is almost like a very slippery slope gray area for me because I've heard people say, but if you keep taking away people's access to certain things and then defending that by saying, well, that's freedom, at one point, are you going to realize you have no access to anything? You know, what if, what if grocery stores start adopting this policy and now I can't go to a grocery store? And this is the thing I tell people that I am probably more vaxxed than most people because when I was a little boy, we lived in Iran, Italy, Germany, and Spain. And then we came back to the States. Every country I went to was like, you know, like probably five to eight to 10 shots. And coming back to the state. So I'm multiply vaxxed. I'm not against it. I'm just extremely hesitant. 
after studying public choice theory, economics, knowing the history of the failures of the government without this feedback loop that's essential in the free market, government, not only when it makes a mistake, it, it doubles down on that mistake. And so I'm very, I'm, so I'm hesitant about the vaccine. That's all I'm, I'm you know, I don't know if I'll ever get it, but for what I can see for right now, what I'm studying that's coming out of Israel um, is that the efficacy of the vaccine is, is very limited. I don't want to go into that territory because I don't want to get your channel, you know, a check mark or something, but. Uh, <laughs> that's okay. We're, <laughs> but yeah, go on. No, so, so for me, it's an issue of freedom and I, I don't ever want the government dictating to tribes or individual human beings violating their freedom. I'm always going to be a proponent of freedom. But again, that's this is this weird gray area where I haven't quite, I'm still trying to figure it out. Like, like I said, what if I wake up tomorrow and all the grocery stores where I live at and say that you, I can't enter the grocery store unless I show my proof of vaccination? Like, at one point, do I realize that this is no longer working for me? This is not, you know, this, there, there's, there's a disconnect. I'm not sure how I can quite weave my way through that. And that's kind of what I've been doing right now is kind of researching and looking this like throughout history, trying to find examples and trying to understand like he, what if everybody in society is saying this and I'm the one, maybe there's something wrong with how I'm viewing the world. I don't know. So I, I don't have a, a really good answer for that. I just, I, at the end of the day, I do support freedom. So yeah. if that makes sense. Of course uh, it position. does. I mean, I think that the argument that I hear people say is, well, it's like public safety, right? So like, it's like a seatbelt, mm. you know, it's not, it's not necessarily for you. It's for the, for the public. What would you say for something like that? Well, first of all, I hate wearing seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> I like I'm, I'm the old school. Like I remember going cross oh my, country we, without seatbelts, no. you know. Was, yeah. And we were like playing in the back seat, like tumbling around. Yeah, yeah no. <laughs> so I, I remember going to the PX Navy base with my father and my mom and she would go shopping and he would drink a beer on the back of the truck and other be other guys and it wasn't this is you know i mean of course we don't want that nowadays but i, I was like this is a different i grew up in a different time frame right. you know i remember going to sleep and the screen door was unlocked there was no locks on the door i mean there was locks on doors but we never locked the doors it was just a different time so for me it's culturally it's hard to adopt this very therapeutic safety centered society yeah. that we have now it's like when I was a kid, I rode bikes and I crashed and flew over the handlebars and I've got more scars on my body than most people. And then now it's like kids can't go outside with being completely padded and helmeted up. And that's, I'm not saying, hey, that's, and again, that's their freedom and the parents' freedom to do what they want with their child. But for me, it's just foreign to me. It's hard for me to adopt that, that this new safety-orientated policy or cultural ethos that our culture has absorbed. And so for me, that's, that's extremely hard to and I feel like we're going down this road that we can't seem to get out of. We're not going to, I don't know. And so, I'm sorry, what was the question? Well, I'm, no, I'm well, imagining. I was just talking about seatbelts, but, but oh. you said something about safetyism, and I wanted to touch on that because I wonder, though, if this, like, hypersensitivity to safety isn't part of what has made us as a society so pliable mm. to some of these, the imposition of some of these views of you know the 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 critical social justice i mean i think i wonder if those two are somewhat crossovers related mm -hmm. yeah i would say so i, I think there's de definitely certain tenets within each um i think it's this i mean the, this this notion that again I, I keep going back to the nirvana fallacy but this notion i've talked to people and i say like, 
I work for government. I've had family that work for government. And there's this like mythical notion that somewhere locked in a way in a room is a group of public servants trying to solve our problems. Like that's not, people don't just magically go to Washington and then just transform and lose apathy and lose their vices. You know, if if anything, it it becomes worse within a government structure. So I think there's definitely overlap between this view towards changing society from the critical justice point of view and also this view that if we just trust the science or trust our politicians, trust our government, that it's that same overlap there that's in place. I, I don't know, I don't have like a, a thought out answer for that, but I, I do see the similarities there and that our culture is seems to be gravitating back and forth between those two positions and are kind of coalescing, I should say. All right, David, before I get to more banal questions. <laughs> uh-huh. You're just moving back to the esoteric. Yeah, uh, to the esoteric. Uh, I've got a few, I've got a few um closing banal. I'll, I'll close with that. Why don't you go to banal? We're not um we can always no. bring Jason back uh, for the philosophical. Um that, that's I think I, I think we have time for one more philosophical. Okay. All right, <laughs> let me see where I'd like to take it. Um <laughs> What, what do you think can be done? This may not be so philosophical, but what do you think can be done to reverse the tide here? You know, I hear two, two things run in my mind all the time. Um, on the one hand, you know, if we can organize people and bring out a critical mass of people to come out and say, we want liberalism in our society, classical liberalism in our society, um, we can turn the tide. On another hand, there seems like a whole generation of people, your kids, my kids have been exposed to this, not only exposed to this, but really inculcated in this. Mm-hmm. And, um, and they're going into the workplace and, you know, and, um, and changing the culture. Are, where do you come down? Uh, are you an optimist, a pessimist? And what do you think needs to be done to maximize your optimism? I, I wish I had like a, I wish I could say I was always optimistic. I, I seem to uh, fickle. I, func- I fluctuate with with whatever is on the news that day. I'm like, oh my god, you got to be kidding me! Uh, is this like the one day is like worse than the next day? Is like this? Is this is this like impo- uh, some absurd dream that I'm dreaming that this is, can't can't be happening, right? So, but I tend to be optimistic. I think that I think that there is a true underlying American ethos that just is we're so different from the rest of the world. We really, there is something here that is, I think that is still, in, even in spite of critical race theory and this critical theory, social justice, I think in spite of that, when you go to like middle America, you don't get that same feeling that you do in big cities, you know, like in San Francisco and Portland and New York, it's very different. There's a almost like, like I said on one interview, I was like, I'm almost like, is Twitter real? I mean, I'm not arguing it's metaphysical, ontological properties, but it's like, is that, is it, is it a heightened reality? You know, is it this cross, or is it a liminal space? Is it a hybrid space? Is it, uh, it's virtual, but it's also reality. But it's like, at the same time when I'm on Twitter, and I actually view Twitter now as I've been using it as actually a valid, uh, I don't know, I hate to say the word institution, but I think it's going off what Michael Malice said one time in an interview. It's like you're seeing in real time opinions and what's trending and that, uh, that you're seeing in real time a data set of you put something out there or somebody that you follow put something out there and you're seeing how many people like it and dislike it and the ratios of that. Now, again, I can, that could be just a completely false trend, but I think there's, there's a certain uh, value to, to that mindset or not to the mindset, but to Twitter. 
And so I tend to be optimistic because of my Christian beliefs um, and my belief system. But then there's days where it's like, oh my gosh, I can't like this. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta tune off for a while. It's like overbearing. Like, what was it that just released two days ago that the, they're gonna send the FBI after domestic terrorists for parents objecting to critical race theory? I'm like, do other people not see this as a violation of everything that's our American principles? And then I go and I go off of off. Of, I'll purposely go outside of my Twitter sphere and go find people that are on the opposite side of the aisle. And it's like, oh my gosh, these people really exist. And they're, they're just as fervently committed to their, their position as I am. I'm like, I just, there is a real clashing of worldviews is what I see is happening right now in our culture. It's like, we are in that 30 year war right now, this cold war that's happening. This really is, uh, I, think, I think what I see too is that Gramsci's hegemonic takeover of the institutions has really happened right under everyone's nose is that people have been, I think the cultural war has happened since uh, the eighties like and conservatives have been screaming about that. And I think most of society has kind of been asleep about, you know, about that. And I think you're seeing it more and more every day. So, so to answer the question, I feel I'm optimistic. Yeah. Overall, 80% of the time is very optimistic. Yeah. And I think how you just, you just combat bad ideas with good ideas. I don't believe in censorship. I believe you get enough exposure and enough people out there exposed to, to truth and good ideas and why you explain to people why the classical liberal outlook, the enlightenment was a good thing, why these principles are good. All right. So, so in ending up, you know, I know you are, you're coming from a, a native American heritage or half, half Hopi. I've, I've got to ask some like things about how in this new critical social justice ideology, we've been talking about, um, you know, our Native American heritage. So what, how do you feel about, <laughs> I'm sorry, this isn't funny, <laughs> but I, I've been on meetings where you have to do your land acknowledgements. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. I, I'm trying not to laugh because I, but here's the thing though, Jason, I mean, I, I know that it comes from a good place because there were, and we already said there were some horrible things mm -hmm. that happened, you know? Yes. Um, I don't think anyone, anyone that I know denies that. Yeah. But the land acknowledgement things. And then this one that I was on, they started playing it. It was, it was, they were, it was coming out of Australia and they started playing a didgeridoo. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And again, like the didgeridoo is lovely, but yeah, you know, yeah. it was all performance art. Exactly. Yeah. That's what it is so, to me. Yeah. It, okay. That, that to me is actually a good example of Judith Butler's performative uh, act. I mean, I know she's applying that to gender, but it's to me, it's like, what value is that adding? And I, I look at that as, as, as it may be, like you said, it may be, I'll borrow your word. It may be a banal thing, right? It may be uh, looked upon from one point of view as, as, uh, as just a, a slight acknowledgement. But I, but what I don't like is that underlying, e that invisible, hidden ethos underneath it. That, that I think that if that spreads, is actually horrible for for the American for our republic. Because once you allow that, what's behind it is this notion again. It's that that it's not enough to be against racism. You have to be anti-racist, and that's part of that paradigm where it says that you've got to acknowledge that your campus or your organization is on living on stolen land. And that, right now, that may be at a stage where it seems to be innocuous. But underneath that, I think, is what's the dangerous part, because eventually they'll say, 
if you really want to be for diversity and inclusion and equity, then you'll relinquish this land. You'll start hiring more native people of color. It's like, I believe in merit. I believe in individuality, individualism. I believe you should earn the, what you, what, you know, your position in society. So that runs counter to me that, and I just view that as possibly, again, I'll borrow from James Lindsay and those guys, but it's like a Trojan horse. Right now, it it's, seems like something that's insignificant. It's just a land acknowledgement. But I view that also from growing up from the native side, many of my cousins, we just look at that as extremely cringy. You know, it's like, I've actually been like, this is a bad example, but I've been to weddings uh, from non-natives and they mean it as a compliment. They'll dress up in buckskins and with feathers and the bride and, and they're all, they'll even play like a flute as if that's like the only thing that natives play is the flute. And it's like, man, it's, and I know they mean well, and I know they're trying to compliment, but it's like, oh, that's just so like cringy and just not, it's, and I don't look at it as offensive, but it's just, it, to me, that is on the same level of these land acknowledgements. I know they mean well, and maybe some people are doing it because they do mean well, but I look at that again, what's underneath that, what worldview is shaping that? And I think that worldview is antithetical to moving forward towards a, back to a classical liberal society. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, okay, so one other question that touches on that, but okay, so I have a backstory. When I was a, a young girl, my dad may, uh, was, we were part of something called Indian princesses, which I'm sure doesn't exist anymore because, you know, uh -huh. I mean, bad. But I have to tell you, like, I was so proud to be an Indian princess because, like, Indian princesses rocked, you know? <laughs> I mean, they were tough. And they like could survive in the wild. And that was the whole idea behind Indian princesses. It was like a father daughter thing. And it was like a, not survivalist, like as in like prepper, but survivalist, like how, you know, a father teaching a daughter how to change a tire. I mean, like yeah. seriously, mm -hmm. stuff, right. And we would go out bird watching and stuff. And um, so anyways, I always grew up. And I mean, I, I was that little kid that did dress up as an Indian, which was now cultural pro appropriation. I am so glad we don't have like, you know, we didn't have social media because my life would have been ruined, you know, already. Um, but it was because I loved it so much. And so, I mean, like, I was so disappointed when, you know, the whole Washington Redskins, the, oh, you know, yeah. the Chiefs and all that. Mm. To me, that was like, they chose those names because they were badass. Exactly. No, I have, you know? I have friends, uh, full-blooded Native friends, and all of us, I don't know if it's our age group, because I'm middle-aged and they're pretty much the same age as me. But we love the Washington Redskins. And I'm talking about full-blooded Pima guys, full-blooded Hopi guys, full-blooded Seminole people, Kiowa, Apaches, some Sioux guys that I know that just, that was our team. I mean, I was born in D.C., so I was, that's, I was, I was always been a Redskin fan. And I was like, also, like, what Washington football team? That's so lame, you know? But it, again, that's disconnects kind of what I was pointing earlier to, I think, your question, David, that the younger generation there were the, the kind of the spearheading that movement uh, that they were, they had bought into that critical race theory and that this was a sign of a, pro, a cultural appropriation of oppression, co committing uh, violence. I was like, how is the name committing violence? I don't, I don't get that. But I mean, I do within the theory, but that again, to me, it was all being pushed by that younger generation. And that's where, where I kind of like got involved because I wanted to target that younger generation and kind of like give their parents and give that audience like some counter information that they had been learning in school. Because 
most of the most of the contact that I do, if I do have contact with the younger generation and the 20, 20 year olds, it's very rare just because of generational gap, but they, we were completely on different polar, we're on like polar opposites of each other. As far as being native, their identity is almost an, a rejection of the, what they would view as a dominant culture where mine and my friends who are breeds or full-blooded, what we call FBI's full-blooded Indians, their position is one of like give and take of absorption and of the of like actual just freedom of expression freedom like i like this team i don't care what you say i like this practice i'll take some of this tradition i'll take some of this christianity i'll do this i believe in this there's no it's almost it's i don't know if it's a generational thing if it's a gen x thing i, I don't, don't know think what that they're actually i don't actually think that they're rejecting the dominant culture i think they're embracing the dominant culture the dominant oh, really? culture is is wokeness i mean in, yeah. in some ways in, in some ways, they're, they're pretending like that they're rejecting whiteness or whatever. But they're, what they're really doing is just embracing an alternative alternative version yeah. of the dominant culture in some ways. By the way, just, just to be clear, I was an Indian guide uh -huh. and my name was White Cloud. I don't know why my name was White Cloud. But uh, so I have it like, you know, sort of a it's like a double there, you know, uh, but it's. Um, but yeah, so I also was in the Indian guys. I mean, that was a big deal. Like my dad was running bear and, you know, we took it very, very seriously. Yeah. I mean, I, it sounds like, you know, it's a joke and we, it was not demeaning, at least the way we understood it, it was not demeaning at yeah. all. We learned a lot of the traditional Boy Scout, um, you know, skill sets and everything else. And we, we got, we shot our 22 rifles and mm. everything else. But um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I have mixed feelings about the Redskins. I don't know. Maybe it was time, you know. You know, language can change some, right? I yeah, mean, yeah. Um, but uh, anyway. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I'm going to call you White Cloud. <laughs> you really? Okay. Then I'm going to have to do some, you know, traditional well, just, dress it, here. It, Imagine being a breed and having to choose every Halloween in, like, grade school whether I wanted to be a, a pilgrim or a native that year. It's like, can it be both? <laughs> Oh my gosh. Okay. So we have taken up enough of your time. How do you always end your, your own podcast? And you, you, you have a um, lead, not follow. How do you, what is the, what is oh, the. It's a Latin phrase. I actually learned that. Um, I saw that I was, I, I was heavily involved in jujitsu when I was younger. Once I get into my forties, I had to stop. Cause I was like, I was just constantly getting injured all the time and I wasn't healing fast enough, but there is a flag it's from Brazil and it says non duco duco which means I am not led, I lead. And so oh, I okay. use that as my, as my like signature, which I just completely uh, culturally appropriated from, uh, <laughs> from uh, the Portuguese population. So, you know, <laughs> but, I mean, again, it's, a, it's a Latin term, but I mean, it's beyond, it's more than just the, the one, one country. So, so Jason, wow. Thank you so much. It was so good to get to know you. And I hope that this is the, the first of many in, um, many conversations. So what is it? What is it again? Lead, not follow or. Uh, non duco to duco. I am not led. I lead. I'm not yeah. led. I lead. All yeah. right. Well, well I thank appreciate you. you. Thank you so much, Jason. Thank you. All right. Bye bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hold My Drink. Like or subscribe to the show and check out the show notes for links to source material and to our website where you can find what each of us is reading every week different news with different views. If you have a topic that you would like us to explore, drop us a line. And join us next week as we say, hold my drink and the conversation gets real.